You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff, and uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad, uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks, so they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes, uh, and these things are high quality, and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. Maybe you grew up in a home where your religious experience was super legalistic. Uh, when I was about uh, maybe 12 ish uh the church we had been attending called a new pastor and this pastor was from the independent fundamental baptist movement Uh, our church had previously been southern baptist and um this was during some of those uh up and down years where they were looking for uh liberalism and our pastor our new pastor came from uh the independent baptist movement and so um, we began to hear all kinds of preaching about women not wearing pants, but wearing skirts, uh, men having short hair over their ears, uh, not having beards, I think was even part of it. Uh, and so we went through a kind of a transition, both as a church and as a family. And, uh, but more so in church, my parents didn't, uh, adopt much of it. In fact, my mom and my dad began to meet with the pastor, uh, and his wife, uh, and met with them, I, I don't know, maybe two or three or four times about their concerns about specific things that he would say, uh, theology that he was kind of bringing in. Uh, and we ultimately left the church. Uh, I then attended a small Bible college that was independent Baptist, not quite as fundamental. They held some of the same kind of separation distinctives, but they weren't mad at everybody and they didn't condemn everybody. <clears throat> and if you uh, screwed up, you did get grace. Um, but this is kind of the backdrop. This is, this has informed a lot of my personal experience, my thinking and my concerns about legalism and Phariseeism. Uh, so my guest today is, uh, Philip Yancey, who, uh, many of you listening will recognize his name. You've probably read any number of his books and he's recently written a memoir where he talks about, um, this very thing. He talks about his upbringing in this kind of independent Baptist fundamental movement, uh, how it was related to his mom. Uh, his dad had previously passed away when he was very young, so young that he has no memory of his dad outside of photographs. So um, Philip talks today about this and the, the danger of this kind of thinking, his own personal experience, how he grew up, how it affected he and his brother uh, to know that his mom had kind of uh, committed them to God's service, Hannah style, uh, in the absence of her husband who had, uh, who had died from polio. So, um, I hope you enjoy this. It's really meaningful. Uh, his book is called Where the Light Fell, a memoir. If you haven't read it, it's definitely worth your time and especially 
if this is the kind of background that you grew up in. Well, my guest today on Uncommentary is probably not going to be uh, a stranger to most of you who are listening. He has written a slew of books, uh, more than two dozen. Is there an actual number or do you just like generalize it so it sounds huge? <laughs> I do generalize it because I, I collaborated with different people on, on this book. So do you count that as a half a book or what? So I, <laughs> I just say around two dozen. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I did not know that you had written for The Atlantic at some point. Is that like an ongoing thing or was that back in the earlier days? Uh, I did an article for them about a year and a half ago. That would be the most recent. Okay. And I have another one that should be coming out soon. Oh, very cool. Uh, journalist and freelance author in Chicago for quite some time. Uh, won 13 gold medallion book awards. Uh, I, I mean, the books that you've written are the ones that people know almost by heart. The Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace. Disappointment with God is uh, one of the ones that affected me the most. Uh, so, Philip Yancey, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you so much, Marty. But we're also talking about your most recent book, which is a memoir um, about growing up and a lot of the things that you experienced. And um, would would you use the word traumatic? A lot of people use that now. Would you use that for your own story, or do you choose another word to describe how you uh, your experiences growing up? You know, it's a funny thing, Marty. I've been reading reviews and then people who write in on Amazon and different places, and they use words like abuse and mental illness and things like that. And I always kind of flinch when I see that because when I grew up, I just thought my life was normal. I mean, I knew there were some things that were different about it. Um, I didn't have a father. Most kids in the in those days did have a father living at home. And so I knew that was different. I knew he had died. But uh, everybody I knew had corporal, puni- corporal punishment. They were beaten by their parents for whatever. And I, I decided my mother was stricter than most, but I didn't, I didn't really see it as traumatic. I wouldn't have used that word back then for sure. Yeah. Um, me as well. I'm of the generation that had to go pull their own switch. So, yeah, right. Uh, you know, so I, I'm well aware of that kind of, uh, that kind of, uh, context for growing up. Uh, but you also explore a lot about the, uh, the religious, especially the Christian aspect of your upbringing in the book. And you start off with a really, um, arresting vignette from your life. And that is how you found out your father actually passed away. Um, that was shocking to me to know that you were the age you were when you found out some of those details, Mm. Um, rehearse a little bit of that story and how you came to find out and and then how it affected you after you found out. Yes. Well, obviously I knew that my father had died. I was only one year old when he died, 13 months. So I have no memories of him whatsoever. I I knew that he had polio and was uh, paralyzed completely. and was in an iron lung for a couple of months and then he died. But when I was 18 years old, I was in college. I was taking my girlfriend, who became my wife, over to my grandparents' house. And she's being polite, wants to know, tell me about the Yanceys. I want to know about your family. And the grandparents pull out a scrapbook. We start going through it. And a clipping, a newspaper clipping falls out that I hadn't seen before. So I reached down and picked it up. And it's a story. Uh, 
in the early pages of the Constitution, Atlanta Constitution, and it it's a story about faith healing. Mm. That here's this young minister who's planning to be a missionary in Africa. He had been in an iron lung at, at a charity hospital, Grady Memorial Hospital, and people who were supporting him had agreed to pray for him and support him in the mission field, along with his family and others, decided that it would certainly not be God's will to take, in quotes, to take somebody with all that potential, with that commitment. So they believed that God would heal him. And against medical advice, they signed him out of Grady, out of the iron lung, and put him in a, in a clinic that really had no machinery that could help him. Mm-hmm. And the, the article was written when things were looking better. He could sleep at night because he didn't have this wheezing machine keeping him awake. He, mm-hmm. he was lying on his back in this w- open ward with a bunch of people in iron lungs. It was just a, a terrible situation. Grady didn't was understaffed. Often people wouldn't respond when called. And now he was getting good care. The picture was of my mother feeding him. He's lying there, uh, still unable to move his arms or legs, but he's much happier. He felt that he had a little bit of movement regained in his toe and looked forward to learning to walk. And I looked at the date of the article, and it was nine days before he died. Mm-hmm. I knew the day that he died. And that that was a secret that had been kept from me for 17 years. Mm-hmm. And it retained its own power because I eventually learned, I, some of this I knew already, that my mother was so, we could use the word, traumatized by yeah. that experience, thinking that she was participating in a miracle and then finding exactly the opposite, this great tragedy that defined her life from that moment on, that she in a sense, gave her two sons, my brother, two years older, and me, to God as, a, as an offering, very much like the story in the Old Testament of Hannah giving her son Samuel to God when she wanted a son so bad, she wanted a child. When she finally got one, she said, I'll give it to God. Mm-hmm. And we knew about that. But when I learned about the circumstances of his death, I realized the kind of twisted power that had been at work because when we became teenagers and started to stray a little bit, we weren't rowdy teenagers at all, but we strayed a little bit from the, from the path that she had in mind for us. She really kind of lost it. And, and those were chaotic years. They were full of conflict. And maybe I would use the word traumatic about some of those events, but that was, that was when we were in high school days. And it's one of those family secrets. You know, when you, when you, push things down, you think they're going to go away. They don't tend to go away. They gain power and come back to bite you later. How old were you when you first found out about the, uh, the Hannah moment that you had been uh, surrendered up to God for ministry in some way? Were you, were you before your teenager years or during your teenager years? That was before I would guess about 10. That's my best guess. Uh, We, we regularly went to the cemetery where our father was, was buried and, as we got older, Marshall, my brother, Marshall and I would cut the grass and make sure the weeds were under control, things like that. Mother would often stand there and cry a little bit and reminisce. And she told us one time that uh, she had first visited that cemetery after the funeral, just a couple of days after the funeral. It, the dirt was still mounded. You know how when, you, when they bury a casket, mm-hmm. the dirt doesn't settle. So it it's mounded and she threw herself down 
she was distraught. She was not prepared for life on her own. She'd never written a check. She didn't know how to drive a car. She had no source of income. And she's got these two young boys, three years old and one year old. And she just was desperate. Mm. And plus, there's this secret of the fact that she thought she she was part of a miracle and instead she was part of a death because mm. the people against medical advice took him out of out of medical care. And so she devoted us to God. She threw herself on that mounded grave, sobbing, and said, God, the only, the only way is to trust you completely. And I, gi- I give you my, my sons. Mm. They're all I have. Help me get out of here. Help me somehow survive this trauma that I'm in. And that was you know, a very meaningful, poignant scene. We were quite touched. And she went even further later and told us that when we were both very young, we had childhood illnesses, pneumonia in my case, and what would look like rheumatic fever in my brother's case. And both times we would have these emergencies. And before she would take us to the emergency room, she said that she would kneel down and pray, God, unless you want them to fulfill their father's role as a missionary in Africa, go ahead and take them now. Wow. Which is a pretty, pretty severe prayer for a mother to pray. Um, and a severe sword to hang over us as we're growing up as well. Um, So combined with um, your mom's kind of uh, austere uh, spirituality, y'all as a family were involved in uh, what I would term the independent fundamental Baptist movement. You got Uh, it. (laughs) The the same, the same group as uh, Jack Howells and, uh, some of those guys, uh, John R. Rice and Sword of the Lord. That was the sword that was hanging over you was the sword of the, Lord, <laughs> yeah, the, the sword of the Lord, right? <laughs> um, so you were involved in that and that, and you've written um, in some of your other books about the racism that you experienced in church uh, growing up. And it comes back around in your memoir here, um, how, so talk a little bit about that. And, and, and I do want you to, to get into um, how your mom was able to, um, I'll, I'll use the word redeem, that may not be the best word, was able to redeem her, uh, her teaching and, and kind of um, integrate it with her understanding of race and your church's mm-hmm. understanding of race as she did Bible studies in the community for mm-hmm. African-American kids. So how was all of that combined with, with kind of some of what your mom was bringing to the table? Hmm. Well, we were in a totally saturated religious environment. In fact, during high school years, I actually lived on church property. We had a mobile home. We never had any money. We were very poor. And I went to five grammar schools in six years because every time uh, they raised the rent, we would find an, a cheaper place. And many people, it was kind of bait and switch. You know, they'd offer a low price to get you in there and then raise the price. But we would we would move every year. Yeah. So I had to meet a whole new set of friends, a whole new set of teachers every year, um, which either kills you or makes you tough. And right. I survived. And um, when we were young, even before school, my mother was a Bible club teacher and she couldn't afford babysitters. So we would go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and hear the same story and the same missionary story and hear, sing the same songs every day in a row. And then 
especially when we lived on church property, of course, every time the door was open and every time some revivalist came through, we were expected to go there. We could mm -hmm. we could never get away from the God business. It was around us completely. And you're right. You you nailed the culture we were part of. Tennessee Temple and Bob Jones were yeah. the feeding schools that uh, that pumped out people, and we were taught blatant racism from the pulpit. The whole curse of Ham theory that that God through Noah cursed Ham, mm -hmm. and because of that, he would never people of color would never rise above a certain status in life. They um, they're good at servants, but they can never be a CEO of a company. Mm. And that was my first real crisis of faith, Marty. I was in high school. I had won a fellowship. And uh, it was at the CDC called the Communicable Disease Center at the time. And I knew my supervisor was this Ivy League PhD, very renowned biochemist who specialized in bacteria staining. And I tried to read up to impress him on my first day at work. And I, I had no idea what he was writing about. It was way over my head. <laughs> and I showed up and they opened the door and to meet Dr. Cherry. And Dr. Cherry was a black man. He was African-American. And I mean, it seems crazy to, to even say that this day and age, but this was back in the, in the 1960s. Mm. I, I, I just dropped my jaw and almost dropped my papers because I had been taught in church. Mm that this would never happen, that you can't go to an Ivy League school, you can't have a job like that at, at a federal institution like that as a person of color. And alarm bells went off. It was, one of, it was that first crack. Wait a minute. They were wrong. They lied to me. They misrepresented. And this is in the middle of the civil rights movement. And my churches were all on the wrong side. They were yeah. trying to keep people from integrating. They handed cards at the door to people of color saying, you're not welcome here. You're, you're not allowed. You're a troublemaker. You're not a child of God. I still had I, in the book, I printed one of those cards. Mm. So that was, that was a, the beginning of my doubts because if they lied about race, maybe they lied about everything. Maybe they mm. lied about God, about Jesus, about the Bible. And I went through a period where I just didn't know what to believe and a, a period of disorder, I call it. <laughs> four or five years where I was just apart on the margins, unwilling to commit to anything. You're listening to uh, Uncommentary. My guest today is Philip Yancey. We're talking about, among other things, his book, Where the Light Fell, his memoir just published recently by Convergent. And we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing, there's costs associated with scheduling, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare 
and you want to give 250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Well, Philip, uh, I probably have something unique on uh that most of the people that you've talked to about the book uh, can't say. And that is that both uh, me and my dad, who's now 85 years old, had your mom in Bible college as a professor. Uh, You mentioned in the book that she uh, was able to earn her degree. I believe it was from this school by teaching at the school. Um, And so my dad would have been there. My goodness, mid seventies, I guess. And I came along in 81, 82. And um, my experience with her, as you can imagine, is completely divergent from your experience growing up. But my other experience, just as a human, is that that's not uncommon when we're dealing with family members who also have a public face that they have to deal with or a public life that they have to live. Um, But one of the things that I remember your mom saying at one time was that uh, she didn't get to go to Africa and she had already started some Bible, Bible studies. I don't know if you called them Bible clubs or whatever, but she was teaching in a lot of areas where there were a lot of uh, African-American children. And were these apartments or were they homes or or were there a combination? Yeah. A combination of both some private homes and some were apartments, but it had to be big enough to allow 25 to 30 squirming kids to find a place on the floor. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And she made the comment in class uh, one time that, um, God didn't allow her to go to Africa, but God allowed her to work with Africans. And of course, my context at the time, I didn't see anything, you know, out of the ordinary about saying something like that. Um, now I look back and think, okay, well, you know, any kid in that room was several generations removed from Africans. Um, did you ever hear her say anything like that? And how did you interpret it? Yes, I did. And I have to say, Marty, one of the most remarkable things to me is the fact that African-Americans adopted the religion of the people who used to, quote, own them. Mm -hmm. That's just an amazing turnabout. And and until the early 1900s, there there were really no Christian missionaries in Africa. It wasn't even on the map. People were going to China and Asia and South America, places like that. And Africa was considered this dark continent. And it really, uh, it had almost no Christian exposure or influence. That has changed dramatically. The stats I hear are 30 to 50,000 people a day in Africa convert to Christianity. Wow. And uh, I have friends who go to Anglican churches that are ruled by bishops who are Africans, actual Africans yeah. from Uganda or Rwanda and places like that. In in Atlanta in those days, there was kind of a paternalistic view toward African Americans. Often people would have one as a maid or even to keep their children or something or to cut their lawn. 
but they were they were viewed as a servant class and you know the whites had it pretty good <laughs> yeah so if you took a a city bus as we often did to downtown atlanta there would mostly be people who were in the servant profession either cleaning houses or you know working as orderlies in a hospital or something like that and very few white people on those buses even though they had a whole section reserved for white people it wasn't wasn't often used they were driving cars mm. and and my mother um she loved children she was a very good bible club teacher and to her it was probably a little like a missionary going to africa here are these people who are especially educated and I need to tell them the story of Jesus and and she did that and um she would make paternalistic comments but that was that was the jim crow south that's mm-hmm. just uh that's just the way things are they had to use separate entrances they couldn't be treated by the same doctors uh had to go to the balcony of a movie theater mm-hmm. it it was separated all the way as if they were different and and we're paying the price for that kind of prejudice and discrimination today. Yeah. Um, your brother uh, and your lives uh, intertwined in more ways than just being brothers as you grew up. Uh, it seemed like your spiritual lives uh, almost went in opposite directions at the same time. Uh, you would be you would be kind of seeking and he would be kind of away, then he would be on fire and you'd be kind of away. <laughs> right. Um, I, how do you think about that now? Because as you write in the book, he's he's not close to God at this point. Um, how do you how do you think about how y'all turned out being raised in the same home under the same kinds of of pressure of I've committed you to God and I've also said that He can take you at any time if you're not going to end up right. Um, talk a little bit about that relationship and how sure. you, how you guys developed. Well, there is a mystery. You can explain all of human behavior by three things, uh, genetics and environment and human choice, free will. (laughs) But try to figure out the combination of the percentage of those three things. You'll go crazy trying to figure that out. So you're right. We were raised in the same environment, same home, same relatives. And for a while there, that worked. Uh, as things heated up in high school years, we took a different tack. My brother's tack was to confront head on. So he would confront the pastor or he'd confront my mother. And he was sincere. He was devout. But he was running into things that just didn't make sense. So he would challenge. Well, when you're a kid and you're challenging adults, you usually lose. Yeah. And he would often lose. And then he would also inspire rage, especially my mother. I tell some of those stories. So I watched that two years younger than he was and decided I don't want to go that route. Uh, you you always lose, and I took a different tack, and that's to to withdraw, to be aloof, distant, not uncommitted, uncommittal, <laughs> and um, just try to survive mm-hmm. to get through that period. Well, we did get through that period, and my my brother, when he was finally free free of constraints, free of the pressures of the church, free of the, of the, of the uh, arguments and everything, the conflicts at home, he decided, like the prodigal son, I'm going to go experience everything they kept me from. And so he did. He dropped out of college his very last semester. He took a lot of LSD back in the, the original hippie days in Atlanta, where days. people would 
yeah, we'd go to Piedmont Park and <laughs> drop acid and just, you know, watch the world get beautiful. And uh, was a member of a commune, eventually moved to California, went through a number of relationships with women and had some addiction issues. And so he indeed did prove I am free. I can do whatever I want. Nobody can stop me. But watching him, I realized you, you think you're free, but actually you, you, you seem to be enslaved, mm-hmm. <laughs> enslaved to your desires and that thirst for freedom. And a lot of the choices he made, the addictions especially, were self-destructive. He should have been a concert pianist. Mm-hmm. Instead, he ended up as a piano tuner playing the same notes over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it, it was sad. I didn't want to be like that. And I, I took a different tack. Um, I was fortunate. I was graced, I would say. I was graced by God to find people who really showed me what a human being should be. And especially for kids who are just kind of wandering around trying to figure it out, that, that would be my advice. Don't look, at, don't look at people who give you a good time. Look at people that you would like to be 20 years from now, mm. because you are becoming now who you will be 20 years from now. Mm. And I, I had just one job, my first job, was was part of a youth magazine called Campus Life. And I became a journalist. And, and when I did that, I looked for people that I could learn from, people I admired and honored and respected. And I found some splendid people, some of them I did write books with, and I got to know them pretty well, and and tried to learn positive values. I, I would have used that word back then, but I was, I was trying to find a mentor. Uh, really what parents should be. We Well, we didn't have a father, so I didn't have a, a role model there, but I, I had some substitute surrogate fathers later on mm-hmm. that did teach me what a man is and what a Christian should be, yeah. a follower of Jesus. I want to shift gears just a little bit and ask you a broader question, not related to your life. Uh, as you look out over the I mean, you've been writing about evangelicalism from some aspect for uh, a number of days now. Um, as you look out across the American evangelical landscape, what what's anything that you see that concerns you? And is there anything that you see that kind of gives you any hope at all? I have a lot of concerns. I think we're at a crisis time in evangelicalism. In the media in general, it's viewed through the lens of politics. As soon as you say evangelical, you'll immediately hear, yeah, 81% of you voted for Donald Trump, you know. <laughs> what kind of Christian is he? And, and they tell me stories about Donald Trump. And when I was growing up, in the, even in the fundamentalist church I was in, politics was not really on the radar. We weren't that concerned about politics. We were trying to be different from the world, mm-hmm. separate from the world. And you, you just assume politics is this dirty business and we're supposed to be different. And, and we had these rules about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And now, because of certain issues, the gender issues, the abortion issues and all that, a lot of the evangelical movement is, is defined by political stances and political involvement. That, that's always a danger sign to me. When I look at church history, every time the church and state are in bed together, it's the church who ends up losing, mm-hmm. not the state. They're going to be there. There's always going to be a government, but the, the state can turn on you. And I could mention, you know, nation after nation who went through that, 
just go to Europe yeah. and look at how few people go to church. And, and if you go back, it's really because of the coziness between church and state that soured and the, and the church lost. Mm. So I'm worried about that, but I'm, I'm actually more worried. The other day, Marty, I wrote an article uh, on this very issue on toxic churches and what turns people away. And I went through that passage, beautiful passage in John 13 to 17, Jesus last night went with his disciples when he was actually turning over the entire mission to them. You know, I've done it for three years, but now it's yours, guys. Yeah. And these guys didn't seem ready for it. You know, yeah. they had <laughs> made a lot of mistakes along the way, which is encouraging to the rest of us who make a lot of mistakes wrong along the way. But Jesus was very patient and kind and and went through. He said, the, the mark of a Christian, the mark of a follower of me is, is love. And he went on to say that, uh, that what, what I'm concerned about most is unity. If the church just was unified, and if it served others, he washed their feet. And he said, you're here to serve others, not to be served. So love, service, unity. And I've asked a lot of people over the years, when I say the the word Christian, or when I say the word evangelical, what is the first word that comes to mind? And Marty, not one time has anybody ever said love, service, or unity. Wow. They usually talk about disunity. Mm -hmm. They talk about attitudes, anti, anti-science, anti-sex, anti-gay, anti-whatever. Um, or they, they talk about how Christians are holier than thou, you know, you're self-righteous, mm -hmm. words like that. And we're really called to be the church. We're called to be followers of Jesus. And Jesus, in that passage, John 13 to 17, shows what that should look like. And if it's not looking like that, we're not really doing what Jesus told us to do. And it's, it's hard to do that if you're defined primarily by politics. Politics is an adversary sport. Mm -hmm. You call names, you undercut, you defame people. And uh, people like Martin Luther King said, you, sometimes you do have to be in politics, but you got to use different weapons. Mm -hmm. He called them the weapons of grace. Mm -hmm. And we, we need some moral leaders who can step into those shoes again today and say, yes, these issues are important. Yes, we got to be expressing our opinions, but we can't be like the rest of politicians. We can't, we can't sacrifice our soul for the issues that are important to us. We still have to be defined by those things that Jesus commanded us to do. Philip Yancey's book is Where the Light Fell, a memoir. It's available everywhere, literally. Uh, I encourage you to get it and read it, especially if you're uh, from a, uh, a background of legalism and you've struggled under uh, your own Phariseeism or someone else's aimed at you. I really encourage you to pick it up. It'll be a uh, it'll be an encouragement to you, I believe. Thank you. And I I wrote this really for people who had been wounded by families, wounded by the church, because as I wrote this book, I realized when when I talk to people that describe their terrible church experiences, I usually just laugh and say, "Oh, it's a lot worse than that." Let me tell you mine. <laughs> but there could be a redemptive ending, mm. and there has been a redemptive ending in my life, and I want to hold out hope. Uh, you asked about hope, and I, I do see a lot of hope in the church, and I hope people take that message away. Uh, Philip, thanks for being with me today. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. 
you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.